Welcome to Rework, a podcast by 37 Signals about the better way to work and run your business. I'm Sean Hildner, and as always, I'm joined by 37 Signals co-founders and the authors of Rework, Jason Fried. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. How are you, Sean? Good. And David Heinemeyer Hansen, how are you? Good, good, good. This week, we are talking about uh, the chapter Illusions of Agreement, and it's all about removing levels of abstraction. And I think maybe we should start out with a primer of what the getting real method is. What does that mean when you say getting real? Getting real for us typically means, well, it can mean a few different things, but it mostly means we let's look at something, right? So looking at something could be looking at a sketch. It could be building something and then looking at a prototype early. It's all about getting to something that we can look at so we're not imagining something. Because when you imagine something, we're naturally all going to imagine different things. Sometimes our imaginations are lined up, but oftentimes they're off enough or different enough that we think we are agreeing with one another about what the other person is talking about. And, and But when you look at something together, like a sketch, a prototype, a mock-up of some sort, something like that, you go, oh, oh, that. Now we all have a shared understanding of what we're talking about. So that's what that's all about. I think what's funny about this is that the illusion of agreement is not just between different people. It's even within a single person. <laughs> you think you have an agreement with yourself about how something should be done. And then you see it in the flesh as a screen or something. And you go like, oh, actually, no, 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 no. I was, I was wrong on that one. I was just mistaken. And that's what often happens with kind of high level architect types in the technical realm or high-level conceptual designers on the design side, you lull yourself into thinking you have figured it out. That, hey, I have a plan here. I have a conceptual model of how it should work. I've written it down. I've spelled out the steps. And then you see it and you go like, well, I don't even agree with myself. I said (laughs) that it was supposed to be like this. And in reality, that isn't what I want. And I think this is that fundamental truth that's been driving the agile software development movement for decades is the idea that no one knows what they want until they see it, (laughs) including the designers, including every. This is why, I mean, in industrial design, car design, they spend so much money and time on clay models right? Like you see, you have this CAD model of what the car is supposed to look and you go like, oh, this looks great. And then you build the clay model and you go like, oh no, the proportions are off. I can Mm -hmm. tell now that this isn't the right design and we need nip tuck here and there. Having something real is what tells the truth. And we're actually not that good at imagining things. As humans. As humans, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, that just starts with yourself. It starts with you as a designer, as a programmer, whatever. And it just gets exponentially harder when you involve other people. Oftentimes, Jason or I will be working on something and we will have that illusion of agreement with the thing we're on. And I'm like, oh, wow, okay, we'll figure it out once we get real. But you add like two, three, four other people on it. We're sitting like four or five people discussing something. It just gets exponentially worse. Which is also why I think a lot of large team productions, what they produce ends up being so not so great Mm. (laughs) many times because you have these illusions of agreement. You've lined up the gears. This is where we're going. And then it gets hard to stop it. This race to something real, 
to getting real, to have running software, or if not running software, then a close approximation. Although I'd say, I mean, compared to what we talk about in, in the chapter, which is prototypes and so forth, we usually run to something more real than that. Like right. it starts with a with a sketch by Jason that eliminates some degree of evolution of agreement. If you had just written down the pitch, okay, some of it is gone, but there's still a fair amount left. And then you get to the running software, the thing that does something, you can click it, you can watch the flow. So part of this is that it's layered, right? Like the illusions of agreements is like a, a pie chart. We're cutting out first the 40% by having Jason's pitch sketch. And then we cut out another 40% by having the first part of the running software. And now we're 20% away from like, okay, we're in agreement. I think the other thing I would add too is it's not just about accuracy of the idea. It's about like the completeness of the idea. And I, a feature we just shipped yesterday was called Bubble Up, which is a great feature. It's like our take on snooze in hay. There was a feature though that we didn't anticipate initially that's part of this. It actually turned out to be really critical, which is this pop concept. The initial idea was you can bubble up an email later. So let's say you get an email and you want to see it on Friday and today's Monday. You say, bubble this up Friday. So it goes away, comes back up Friday into a section called bubble up at the top of your inbox. Now, the original idea sort of stopped there. And then if you looked at that email, it would then leave the bubble up area and go back into the standard email flow. But after we began using this for literally 10 minutes, we go, this needs to stay there. It can't go away. I need this because it popped back up. I'm, I'm sort of interested in seeing what it is. So I click it. And then if it went away, I'd be frustrated. Right. So, so we had this idea that these bubbles should float to the top and stay there until you quote pop them. And we had to use the real thing. Now it's, it's possible. Someone could say, well, it's possible. You could have just thought of that. And that's <laughs> right. true. It's true. Yeah. yeah. But really the reason why we came to that is because we began to use it. Yeah. And then that became very clear. And the only way to do that is to use something that's pretty real. And it was quite real and quite obvious the moment that we began using it. And what's so fascinating about that is that the difficulty of design when you use something real in that example, it was so obvious. You did not need to be a genius to see that this wasn't working. We could all see it wasn't working. Why would you invest so much time trying to imagine all the edge cases and considerations there could be with some feature that requires quite a lot of intellectual, conceptual firepower to sort of spin up that entire universe in your head when you could simply just build the damn thing and just go in <laughs> 10 minutes, as Jason said, oh, this isn't right. No, no, no. It can't just disappear. And it's just apparent to all. It's no longer a hard design problem. And I think this is one of those vintage 37 signals thing is we try not to solve hard problems. Can you just move this problem either in time or in concreteness? And then suddenly a very hard problem, like imagining the fact that the bubble can't go away just purely in your head, becomes a very easy problem when you're seeing the reality of this not being right in the real world. It just transforms a whole class, if not the majority of design problems from being very difficult to being substantially easier. Now, not everything is as easy as to go like, oh, it has to stay there. Sometimes you'll face it, but at least you'll know, right? That's the thing. At least it'll be apparent. You're highly unlikely to miss a glaring omission of design when you're looking at something real and you're actually using it. I mean, that that's the important distinction. You're not just looking at it, right? This comes from usage. Yeah. And this is another 
I think, critical part here is that we're not just using this in a clean science room somewhere, tinkering with the abstract. No, no, no. We applied this feature to our own data and start using it with real data. This is another step of getting real. It's not just about building it. It's also about using it in anger, using it with something real and concrete, not fake data, not ipsum lorem, where things just look just right. You put in all the the crappy real world data, the tests of design. The messiness, yep. All the messiness of reality. And then immediately it's clear where it sticks out, where reality sticks out. And you go like, ah, okay. When you go to present a, a new idea, a new feature or something, David was saying you start with a drawing. But even before that, how do you within yourself get to the point where you're ready for a drawing or a sketch? An idea <laughs> to use the term bubbles up, basically uh-huh. <laughs> you have some thought and that could come from a million different places, but you have some thought about a way to improve the product or to add something new to the product or improve something we have. And you start to kind of just think about it. I just start to th- think about it. And often I'll, I'll sketch. I just like, it's like a big mess of just like overlapping sketches, right? Yeah. It's just thoughts that I, that I try to create some structure out of the chaos. That's a, a new idea and go, how could this work? But that's me trying to get real. It's not real. It's a sketch, but it's realer than a, than an abstract thought. Mm-hmm. And then you get somewhere you're like, okay, this this kind of works. This kind of I think there's something here. And then I'll bounce it off David or I'll bounce it off someone else or whatever, and we'll we'll play with it a little bit. But typically the 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 full blown pitch, which we kind of call a shaping doc, when we shape up this idea, is words typically words and pictures because they support each other. Mm-hmm. A picture doesn't actually, what is it, uh, say a thousand words or whatever. It sometimes <laughs> does, but not when you're just trying to describe like a flow or how things work because it's just a kind of a snapshot in time. So so these things sort of embrace each other and sort of explain each other. And that's the first version of getting real, but it's not that real because it doesn't actually exist. It helps remove some of the illusion is to get back to the, the topic here. Some of the illusion is has been has been cleared up. And now we have a better sense of what we're talking about. It's not the answer. It's a version of a potential answer. But at least we're looking at something that we can all go. I, I understand at least what I'm looking at here. There's some path to actually building the thing. I think paths begin to unveil themselves in people's minds. Like, ah, we could do that or this could work that way. It also just it brings up questions that wouldn't have been brought up otherwise. Like, how are we going to do that? Or here's a simpler version of that. Or if we do it that way, it's going to take four weeks. If we do it this other way, it might take a week and a half. You know, it's it's that stuff. But at least you're talking about something that you all know what you're talking about. And once you're at that level, the level of the sketch, the level of the pitch, there's enough to do these feasibility spikes that I like to do with a lot of things. Because sometimes I'll look at a pitch by Jason and I'll have a hunch of how to do it. But I need to actually try it in the code to see whether we're, as we like to say, cutting with the grain. Does it fit within the existing architecture? Can we easily get from A to B? And sometimes quite early on, I'll remark on something in my brain about the pitch that's like, ooh, that thing might not be so easy. And then we jump into these other phases like trading concessions. Like I'll do a technical feasibility spike and I'll see what the code tells me. I'm reading tea leaves here from <laughs> uh, from the source code and the source code will reply back and it'll say like, yeah, here's an easy path. Here's a straight shot. But 
it just can't have this part of it. It doesn't have this component of it. And then we'll go back and interrogate the the pitch, usually means going to Jason's like, how much do you really care about this part of it, right? <laughs> and sometimes he'll go like, I don't care about it. It was a, it was a doodle. It was a right. scribble as part of it. It's not consequential at all. And other times he'll come back and say like, that's the whole feature. I mean, it's funny. I was just thinking about another Hey feature we worked on. Every from and every to, which is this feature we build in where you can go to a contact page and then you can see every email a person has sent you or you've sent to that person. And there was a straight shot where that was simply on a topic basis, as we like to call it, like a thread basis, that there would just be one line item for each thread. And we could have done that in like half a day. And then the program I'm working on, it went back to Jason. Is like, is this good enough? There's a straight shot here. And he's like, no, this would do absolutely nothing for us. This is not a useful implementation of this feature. And we had to go the long route and it took two weeks. That's kind of like a good illustration of the fact that sometimes on the technical end, you don't have the full appreciation, even after reading a pitch about what's truly important or not. And Jason might not even sit with it as he's doing the pitch of knowing what's truly important or not. But once you start building it and you see what comes back from it, it's like, oh, yeah, 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 no, no, this doesn't work at all unless it has this. And on the contrary... We've had plenty of examples the other way around where we can cut something off that just feels like, or that in the pitch perhaps gets some attention, but it isn't a big deal. Uh, one we've really wrestled a lot with, and I th- find these to be the most interesting ones, was this participation types we just launched in Basecamp, where you can mark whether someone is working on something or whether they're just following it. And we were following up, like trying to rejig how we then do invitations. And there were... This uh, approach about how we do client side, like whether you can hide something for a client now, we want to expand the concept. And the code was telling us something very clearly, that there was a path here that would make it a straight shot, but it involved these trade-offs. And we weren't quite sure what we felt about these trade-offs. We went back and forth a bunch of times. And it literally was the difference between, okay, we can do this in a week. Or like, we can't do it at all this cycle. It's got to be something we do next cycle and it's going to take six weeks because as we also like to say, it requires digging up the concrete. We got to hammer away the concrete. So much of this, uh, the illusions of agreement is also sometimes the illusions of agreement with the computer. The illusions (laughs) of the agreement with the source code. Like, well, I think this is easy to do. Like, this should be straight shot. And then you get more and more concrete and you go like, oh no, actually not, (laughs) not at all. This is very difficult. And it's funny too, because I I see it from Jason's perspective often, like he'll put out a pitch and something that just on paper or in the sketch seems trivial turns out to be like, okay, that's actually totally really hard to do because of all these reasons, complicated reasons. And other times Jason will present someone, this is like a four weeker. And I'm like, yeah, I could finish that in the afternoon (laughs) just because that's just the nature of the materials. Right, Um, right. Which is just what makes this whole thing so fun and getting real so fun is that we're not engaging in these fantasies. The yeah. the reality of hitting the materials straight on and working with the materials, not working in the abstract. One of the, the great historical ways of, of doing this wrong was back in the days of the Photoshop cutouts, right? Like a designer back in the early 2000s was someone who sat in Photoshop and pixel perfected a design of what a web page should supposed to look like. And then it just said like, hey, cut this out, right? Could not be further abstracted from the materials of the web. 
It was not HTML. It was not CSS. It was not JavaScript, right? It was made in this artificial vacuum where you could pixel perfect align everything. The closer you get to the materials, the closer you are to getting real. The quicker you can start working with the the real things, right? Like making the the jump from, I mean, you're designing a watch, right? You're sketching something out on paper and you're like, okay, what can we actually do with steel or gold or whatever? Yeah, this is, I think, important. The more complicated the idea, the more important it is to get real as soon as you can. You can spend months thinking about something or you can spend like a couple weeks and then spend those months that you would have spent thinking building the thing and having far better answers in the end. I, an example of this, and I'll, I'll give a little bit of something away, is that we're working on a sort of our take on Kanban in, in Basecamp right now. And this is a, a feature that we worked on this cycle and we're going to work on it a bit more. We got a lot of it pretty close, but there's a lot of things that as you start using it, you just, you realize that certain concepts didn't work or other concepts really work or things need to be tweaked. There's no way to get to those answers unless you use the thing. Yeah. Again, we could have tried to aim for perfection in the idea and covered every, we talked a bit about this already, but covered every edge case or not even edge cases, but just covered every use case abstractly. And the chances of hitting that 100% are very low and probably even hitting it 80% are very low. You've got to get in there and build the thing. And so we learned a lot over the last six weeks and we're really damn close now, but we need to use it some more and make a few more adjustments. We're going to use it for real this next cycle internally before we release it to customers whenever it's done after that. So anyway, it's just one of those things where that was a, it's a big new concept for Basecamp. It touches a lot of different things. There's some brand new interactions in it. And we had to use it. You have to use it to know where to go with it. I'd also say building is just more fun. Building is more fun than thinking. <laughs> than guessing, right? right. And, and thinking is, is overrated. As we've said, like you can drastically reduce the amount of damn horsepower you need in your head if you just start building. And building is just fun. It's fun to take something that is sort of not really there and, and getting it out. I think a parallel, for, at least for me, is that I'll have these thoughts in my head about what I think about something, and then I'll try to write about it. And that translation, the getting real part of taking a concept in my head and committing it to paragraphs mm-hmm. is a way of getting real with that idea. And oftentimes I'll change my damn mind in the <laughs> right. process of trying to explain, first of all, to myself what I really think about something. And we have this happen over and over again when we build products too. We set out with one thing, we set out with one idea and we start building. And then the obviously right thing, the obviously better thing emerges through the process of building. And this is why building is just better. It's more fun. (laughs) You should race to building, spend less time thinking. Now, part of that is that this only works if building is cheap, if it's fast. If you work in a domain where like building is literally like skyscrapers and it's going to take five years until you get the feedback on your idea, okay, different domain. We work (laughs) with the web. The web has this amazing feedback loop and cycle where we can stick two people on an idea, one person on an idea, figuring out does it work, does it not work, and we get results back right away. Uh, Well, I think that's a a great place to stop. We do have a question from a listener. This one was emailed in by Tom. Uh, It's mostly for David, but uh, Tom writes, I noticed in the rework book, you frame code review as optional in the part where you talk about edge case QA findings, etc. Could you please tell me a little bit about this policy, where it came from, 
and how it fits into your development cycle. It's funny, we were just talking about this internally, not just in terms of code review, but in terms of QA in general. Like, how do uh -huh. you... Um, did we talk about this in the last one? Conference? We talked about uh, QA briefly last time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this is, is like a, a version of that, that my barometer is that skilled people uh, have a good internal sort of gauge for confidence. Is this good or is it not good? Is this worthy of a large process or is it not worthy of a large process? Mm -hmm. And code review has some aspects of process to it that is not always worth it. If you're new and you don't know your way around a code base, for example, you should absolutely get a code review. If you've been working on this thing for damn five years and it's a small thing, you may not need a code review. Now, the code review always has the opportunity of finding something, right? But that doesn't mean it's worth it. Right. Because the criticality of what you're working on right now might be, as we talked about last time, rather low. So running the risks of just pushing something out might very well just be the right thing to do. Now, code reviews have other benefits because they're teaching platforms, essentially, in both directions. Um, sometimes I love actually getting a code review from someone who um, hasn't been here for this long. They're not reviewing me because they're the more senior person. They're reviewing <laughs> it because they're actually the more junior person. And it's an opportunity to spell out the assumptions that are implicit in the work that why we do. Why did you do this this way? Exactly, why, right. What, what did this decision? Or it yeah. would appear that it would be easier to do this. And then there's a reason for why we're not doing that. And sometimes there's not a reason. And you're just like, oh, yeah, <laughs> you're totally right. And yeah. um, let, let's change it around. So I really like code reviews. I'd actually say it's, it's my favorite form of mentoring huh. when it comes to programming because it is so concrete. It, it's almost like uh, straight injections into your vein in terms of lessons. Like it's not this abstract thing that goes through some sort of filter. It's being shot straight in because it's a review of actual work. You don't have to translate like high-minded concepts about cohesion or, or whatever. Into something. I'm pointing out, here's a piece of, not a piece of code, here's a line or here's a character that could be different, and this is why. So it has that really concrete character that makes these lessons come alive in a way that when you embrace that, you allow people to level up quite quickly. I've worked with a bunch of programmers at Basecamp where I've seen that transition of, hey, we start doing some code reviews, and I, I'll do like five with a person. And the person is at a different level after the five. Again, it's the getting real part. Right? Like we're not talking about the abstract notions here. This is apprenticeship forms of mentoring, not conceptual forms of mentoring. This is like, hey, look at this piece of wood. This is how we cut it. You see how you hit the knot here, the grain? This is how you actually, if you twist it in the machine like this, and the student will go like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. And then next time, you don't review that part because they figured it out. We do the same thing on the design side. This reminds me, I, I want to do some more live, live stream design reviews. Yeah. Because... We had one a few uh, last week. Uh, we're working on this revamp way to invite people to Basecamp. And it was this really juicy hour of just finding the way to do something. And I wish we'd recorded it. I mean, it was just like, it was just instructive, you know? Um, but basically, we, we look at things together. We riff on, a lot of it is riffing on words. Like, what does this mean? Like, wh wh what does this say? How could we say this, you know, in a way that's that's clearer, that's that's more obvious, that doesn't provoke more questions? Or there might be a flow where there's you know, a few steps and can we condense this or what's the difference between this and that? And how do you know this is going to happen when you do that? There's a lot of that kind of stuff going on. But I'll try to get into 
live streaming some of these things. This just reminds me that we should be showing more of our process live. I just think it's really valuable and even just for us too, and for new employees, but also for the public who's working on similar things too. You know, it's, you don't really get to see what it's really like. I was talking to, we, we just hired someone to help with product strategy and he was remarking how he likes to read these sort of write-ups Companies put together these write-ups. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit last last week. You said they were bullshit. <laughs> well, the, yeah, it's just like it's this is all coming around because it's more like the real work is kind of as I talked about, kind of messy and and uh, it all relates to that. So it's it's just fun to look at the real stuff. So anyway, yeah. Well, perfect. I think that's a, a great place to stop. Uh, thank you, Tom. If any of you out there have questions for Jason or David, you can call and leave a voicemail at seven zero eight six two eight seven eight five zero. Or better yet, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to hello at rework.fm. You can also just write in for me to read your question, but I don't think anyone needs to hear my voice any more than necessary. Okay, next week we're talking about reasons for giving up. But for now, I want to say thank you to Jason Freed. Thanks, Sean. And thank you, David Heinemeyer Hansen. Thanks, man. We'll see you uh, next week. Adios. Rework is a production of 37 Signals. Our theme music is by Clipart. We're on the web at rework.fm where you can find show notes and transcripts for this and every episode of Rework. We're also on Twitter at Rework Podcast. If you're following along with the book, next week we'll be discussing the chapter Reasons to Quit. And if you like the show, I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you're listening to this. 